there's really literally no question that Jesus of Nazareth, he was an enigmatic character and terribly, terribly provocative. Last week, if you were here, you remember Brie taught us, we encountered that fun-loving, save-the-day, turn-water-into-wine miracle worker Jesus at that wedding in Cana. He literally was the life of the party in that moment. And then today, we encounter this animated, abrasive Jesus. He's driving cattle and sheep and people out of the temple with a whip that he's made. He's like literally the epitome of a party pooper. He's angry and upset. Now, this particular event that we're looking at, it was provocative for first century Israeli culture for different reasons than it is for ours, and I want to highlight those. For them, for the first century Hebrews, Jesus' antics in the temple, they were stepping on every single religious and social sensitivity that these humans held near and dear to their hearts. He was acting authoritatively without showing signs of his authority. He wasn't cowering before the pressures of the social and the religious elites of his day, cowering kind of before what they demanded of him. He was literally shattering the status quo that had been established in his society. Now, for them, it was provocative, but for us, Jesus' behavior was provocative for very different reasons. And it's primarily in this scene, his anger. It's, it's his apparent rage. As we're reading through this story, as we envision ourselves in this scene and we see Jesus, gentle, mild, meek and lowly Jesus, raging, whipping, turning tables over, casting the coins all about the temple, yelling, animated. You know, in our collective imagination here in the West, in evangelicalism, we love the Jesus of the paintings with the little lamb tucked underneath his arm, usually hair softly flowing in the wind, as he looks upon us and gently says, you're so cute, so cuddly, still waters for you, green pastures for you. We love that Jesus, and that is the Jesus of the collective imagination of most people, whether they're churchgoers or not churchgoers. But this temple-cleansing Jesus he is something that we really don't have categories for. Like, we don't have paintings of Jesus turning over tables set up in museums where we go and wonder and stand in awe at the brashness of Jesus. He's unpredictable, and in some ways, this Jesus, he's downright dangerous. He's really hard to figure out. There's so much in this story to ponder, but to grasp who this Jesus is, to know who this temple-cleansing, animated Jesus is, it's core for us to understand three specific things, the temple of God, the holiness of God, and the heart of God. To know why Jesus was acting this way, we need to have a grasp on what the temple of God was, what the holiness of God is, and what God's heart for all of humanity is. So let's walk through that. First with, what exactly is the temple? We don't have really constructs for what a temple is in secular, modern, urban San Diego society. Understand this. The Jewish temple was the centerpiece of all Hebrew society. This temple that Jesus is cleansing, it was present in all of the Hebrew stories. It was embedded in their collective memories. And these Jews rooted their entire identity around this temple the temple was this massive architectural and spiritual and political and social symbol. And they believed that it was the meeting place between heaven and earth. 
The temple for the Jews was the place where God's presence came to earth and his presence met with humans and was mediated towards them. So going clear back, track with me now, quick biblical theological lesson. Ready? Here we go. Buckle up. Going clear back to Genesis, the Garden of Eden was actually the very first temple. Adam and Eva, first man, first woman created, breathed life into, and then God placed them as priests in this high place, in this temple called the Garden of Eden. And this was where God's presence dwelt with humans. It's where heaven came and touched earth. And as we know the story, sin corrupted that first temple. And because Adam and Eve chose to go their own way and believe their own course rather than trusting in God's way and God's wisdom, God drove them out of that first temple. And then as you track with the biblical narrative through the ages, God continued to always give his people grace. Rather than destroying them for polluting his temple, God was merciful with all of humanity throughout the ages. So in their desert wanderings in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, God gave to them the tabernacle, all those super boring chapters that we tend to skip over whenever we're doing our year-long Bible reading program. God there was giving to them grace. He was giving them a place where his presence would be mediated back towards them because he longed for them. Centuries later, in the days of Solomon and the kings, the people settled in the promised land. And there they would build, under Solomon's wisdom and his riches, they would build the most magnificent temple in all of history. Now, these two physical locations, the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple in the promised land, those physical locations, they were filled with the symbols of the Garden of Eden. So what these were, they were these little mini restorations of the original garden temple where humans interacted with the presence of God, where they could come and be one with their God in the midst of a fallen and polluted world. But just like Adam and Eve the Jewish people continued to always choose to believe the lies of the enemy. The Jews always decided to do what was good in their own eyes and what was evil in their own eyes. They defined that for themselves. And that process of self-defining what good and evil was led them to disobey God and eventually to pollute all of the promised land and to pollute their temple. And so once again, just as Adam and Eve were driven from the first temple, all the Jewish people were driven from the second temple. And so God used the Assyrian empires and the Babylonian empires as metaphorical whips to drive them away from his presence out into exile. But just as with Adam and Eve, there was always grace, 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 grace for temple-polluting, defiled, self-defining, pride-filled, rebellious humans. Always mercy, always grace from the Creator. And so in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, as we're traveling through the Bible, God returned the people from captivity. He delivered them from the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires, and he sent them back into their lands where they built a second temple. By the time of Jesus, jumping now to the New Testament, this second temple, it was back in the promised land, and you would think that all would be well. They had learned their lessons from Adam and Eve being cast out from the northern empire being cast out by the Assyrians, from the southern empire 
being cast out by the bow. You would think that in their collective memory, they would say, let's remain pure. Let's do what God wants us to do. And we will be in relationship with him and all will go. You would think that this would be the case. But instead, their temple was right in the midst of a third oppressive empire. Maybe the most oppressive empire to have existed yet, apart from our empire currently. The Romans. The Romans. And so God's people were in their land again. They had their temple, but they were actually living as cast-out exiles under Roman Empire in their own home. And like their ancestors before them, over and over and over, the Jewish community, particularly the Jewish social elites and the religious establishment of Jesus' day, had compromised their purity before God. The Jewish leaders who were in authority when Jesus came on the scene, they were in bed with Caesar, they were corrupt to the core, they were money-hungry, and tragically, these Jewish leaders had become just as oppressive as the empires God had used in their history to drive them out. So the temple of Jesus' day, it was no longer a symbol of the garden the temple of Jesus' day had become a symbol of sinful corruption right in the center of the promised land, which some scholars believe was the Garden of Eden. Much more teaching on that later. It was a symbol, this temple, it was a symbol of power brokering and political maneuvering and money-making. And all of this was very, very subtle. It all had a shiny face on it. Because the corruption of the religious elite of Jesus' day, it was hidden deep down in their hearts. Understand something about this scene that we just read. When the Jews came for Passover, they couldn't bring their animals with them, and so they had to buy and purchase the animals. There was nothing wrong with the selling of sacrifices. Where they set up camp to sell sacrifices was very, very questionable, but Jesus could see through the facade and into their hearts, and their outward behavior seemed fine for the most part, but inside they were corrupt. Dead men's bones, Jesus would call them later in the Gospel of Matthew. These guys were using God's temple, this holy space of interaction between holiness and humans. They were using it as a marketing ploy instead of offering this pure sacrificial worship to God. Now, whether these people were doing this intentionally or unintentionally, oftentimes most of the damage we do as humans is unintentional, but it's still damaging. They were multiplying. They were actually continuing to propagate the systemic injustice of their society rather than being healing agents to it. People were doing their religious thing, and they were being led by falsely humble pious leaders, so they were doing their religious thing, but God's actual heart purposes were being neglected. And Jesus came onto this scene, with all that history in our minds now, Jesus came onto this scene as an agent of complete upheaval. Jesus' behavior carried with it centuries of his people's compromise, centuries of his people's impurity of heart. Jesus comes on the scene with centuries of this pseudo-worship layering upon layering upon layering into now a temple in the midst of the promised land that's polluted and corrupt, this is why we see this animated behavior. And in that animated behavior, we see our next two things that it's so crucial for us to grasp as apprentices of this great master. We need to see God's holiness, and we need to see God's heart in this. We understand the temple but in Jesus' behavior, we have a display of both God's holiness and God's heart for humans. 
Let's talk about holiness here for a moment. Lots of big, thick theological concept for us this morning, so just stay with me. Drink lots of coffee. The reason that we are confused by Jesus' intensity is because we don't have categories for God's complete and absolute holiness. We just don't have a grasp on the otherness of who God actually is. Holiness means dedicated unto or holy other. And so for us, culturally, around us, we, we love those verses that say God is love. And we rejoice and we celebrate God is love. God is also holy. That is that he is utterly pure. He is holy other. And God's holiness, his holiness cannot be denied. So um, one of my professors and friends, Tim Mackey in the Bible Project, I cannot recommend these guys enough. They have done an incredible job with so much of the Bible. And I want to just show you guys this quick little five-minute video that really summarizes holiness for us so you can have a good, a good grasp on it. Holiness, yeah? Okay, let's watch. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, this hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. 
And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. All right. Got it? Holiness. Holiness. Such a big idea. Jesus' intensity, as you look at him in this, in this crazy scene, Jesus' intensity was driven by God's holiness. What he was doing was he was driving impurity from the place of interaction between humans and God. The place where God's holy touch was to heal humans was instead being polluted by humans' 
commitment to corruption, and Jesus was having none of it. He was the end of it. This impurity, it was hidden in these humans' hearts, and we want to talk just a little bit about what it was and make this really concrete for us today. Maybe it was greed. There was all sorts of greed when you look through the histories of who these leaders were. There was a lot of lack of love for the other. There was a lot of racism. There was a lot of issues going on within these communities that Jesus was driving out. Really, when you look at the overall piecing together of the outward fruits of first century Palestinian Jews, it was ugly. It was nasty looking. So we don't know exactly what the specific sins were. It was just an overarching posturing of heart. And so what was happening because of their corruption of heart was humans were coming into the presence of God, and rather than being touched by his holiness, their corruption was bringing about death. I love how the guys, they have the priest in the temple in the video, and the light goes past, and he just collapses over. It's the very thing that was said to Adam and Eve, and now you're going to die. There was a spiritual death that led to physical death, right? And this is where I want us to actually see Jesus' intensity through the heart of God. This is so profound to me. It was so illuminating to me when this came clear to me in my own prayers and meditations. Jesus' heart, as we watch him cleansing the temple, he goes in and his heart is actually to see humans healed. Even the most corrupt of humans, as he's driving them out, his heart and his intensity is to see them thrive in God's holy presence. Because human hearts were corrupt, they were actually destroying themselves. Jesus' intensity came from God's heart to have all humans thriving in his holy presence, not just with an outward obedience, but an inward purity. Jesus was angry, and he was angry at the separation and at the death that had been brought on by all of this impurity through human hearts. His heart, though, was for those very humans who were corrupting the temple to become holy through God's touch. And so as Jesus made this whip and turned the tables over, his zeal was because he knew, he knew that only through whole heart holiness would people truly live. Let me state it another way. To be human is to be holy. To pollute Holiness is to deform humanity as the biblical meta-narrative teaches us. And Jesus did not want us destroying ourselves. His zeal for his father's house, it was to make his father's house a place where people would be made whole, where society would be healed from its greed, from its injustices, from its oppression. And that is the key for us this morning, Neighbors Church. That's the key for us right here in 2020, urban San Diego. Remember, Tim said there at the end of the video that we, the church, we now are the new temple as Jesus followers, filled with the Holy Spirit. We are filled with God's presence, and we, in our hearts and collectively as a community, we take God's presence tomorrow into our workspaces, into our classrooms, into our neighborhoods, into our homes, and we are bringing that holiness out into the world. But becoming holy for us is both passive and active. God fills us, and he does his work in us, but we this morning have to actively pursue holiness as well. What we need to guard ourselves from is being careful not to become like the religious elite of Jesus' day, 
where we all know the stories, we do the church things, we attend the rituals, we do all the religious stuff, but our hearts remain untransformed, impure, deformed by a lack of holiness. So this is where we're going to start landing the plane. This is going to be your takeaway section. This is what we get to do this week. How do we engage this week in a full, wholehearted, abandoned pursuit of holiness? How do we increase the purity and the temple power that we're supposed to be taking out into the world? We partner, number one, with Jesus' zeal. We partner with his zeal. Track with me in this. The spirit of Jesus dwells in each of us, and he hates sin. And so as we pray as we do our times of silence and solitude, as we study the scriptures, we are partnering with God through his indwelling presence. And with that indwelling presence, we develop a zeal to drive out corruption, to drive out pollution, to drive out sin from our hearts. Again, another point of meditation that I think we're missing, a point of depth and interaction with God that we need to engage in in Western Christianity Sin is dangerous. Sin is deadly. And it's not to be toyed about with. We're not to make room in our souls and in our being in any way for sin to corrupt our hearts. Like Jesus, we are to be aggressive with sin. We are to be animated in our driving out corruption from the temple. There's Gideon right there. Hey, buddy. Think of it this way. We're to make metaphorical whips with the word of God and drive out lies. We literally are. We're to turn over the tables of, well, it's not that big of a deal, justification and compromise. We're to turn those tables over and say, no, God the Holy Spirit indwells me, and with Jesus I want to drive these impurities, compromises, justifications, allowances for sin to rule in my being. I want to, like Jesus, drive it out of the temple of my heart. And as we are sensitive to the Spirit within us and with the Scriptures guiding us, our zeal continues to intensify in this active portion, the passive portion of we are declared just and righteous before God, but the active portion is our pressing into, receiving, responding in partnership, as it says in Genesis, walking in the cool of the garden with our God. So what I want to do as we wrap this up this morning, please stick with me. So important. This is why I was excited about Phil being here this morning. I want to make this really concrete. Something for us to consider this week in our community groups and in our times of prayer and meditation. I want to talk about from the text what we see Jesus doing. He was driving greed and covetousness from the center of the temple. And I want to talk about how we need to drive the hidden sin of greed and covetousness from our own hearts. These guys were most likely being driven by some form of greed, and Jesus wasn't having it. And here's the deal for us. In our culture, greed and covetousness is so insidious because greed and covetousness is rewarded by our culture. We live in a materialistic culture that builds its identity on wealth, how much we have, where we live, what car we drive. And this means... That for us, the more we earn, the more we have, the more we are deemed valuable and successful by whoever says that out in the society around us. And what that has done to us, loved ones, is now we call covetousness ambition. And we call hoarding and stockpiling prudence about our future. 
And we call greed the pursuit of the American dream. The message from our culture is now we must constantly get more. Contemplative author Richard Foster, he said this 40 years ago, clear back in the early 80s. He said, we really must understand that the lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we do not like to impress people we do not like. It's time to awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. So we have greed and covetousness and this outward influence that deceives us and corrupts us, but it also comes from within us. We are messed up on the inside when it comes to greed and covetousness because the message from our deceived hearts, from our doubting hearts, from our untrusting hearts, is that we'll never have enough to be secure, we'll never have enough to be valuable, we'll never have enough to be considered beautiful and worthy by the world around us. I have yet, and I've been pastoring for 21 years, over, over two decades now, I have yet, including myself, to ever hear somebody come to their therapist or their small group or sit down in an office counseling session with me and say, you know, my struggle right now is greed. I just have too much, and I can't seem to stop coveting more. Nobody in the history of Christianity in the West has ever said that. Have any of you ever confessed that? If you have, well done. God bless you. You're super holy. We need to partner with Jesus in the Spirit, and we need to take definitive action to drive the impurity of greed and covetousness from our hearts. How? I told you this morning is just bare-bones, concrete activity. How do we actually do this? Practice simplicity. Practice simplicity. If you're new to neighbors, we have three core values. Simplicity, stillness, and spirit. We're going to talk about simplicity for a moment here this morning. To drive greed from our hearts, we increase in our life of simplicity. And simplicity is simply, we define it as that inward posture of heart that grows more and more content with being God's child and living with what God provides. And so simplicity is marked by three constants that I want to talk about. Prayer for the rich, radical generosity, and being family with those who have less. Prayer for the rich radical generosity, being family with those who have less. Five more minutes, and we're going to come to communion. What do I mean by prayer for the rich? I mean that you and I pray for ourselves. You see, this is how wired we are. Whenever we say prayer for the rich, we're immediately thinking, oh, that person, and those people, and that guy, and that, no, oh, dear church. We just do not understand the affluence we swim in as modern Americans. We just can't get our heads around how far ahead we are, both in the history of humanity and collectively around the globe. You and I this morning, this is no condemning word. This is just statistics. We are rich beyond rich. And as American Christians, that clouds our ability to discern greed and covetousness. It clouds our ability to discern the subtle trust in money and trust in value and material things above Jesus. And so we must pray for the rich, us. Jesus warned his followers, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Dear neighbors, 
for us, that's not looking to them who have more than us. That's us this morning heeding the words of Jesus saying, how am I going to thread this needle? Because I have more than I could possibly ever need right now. We are to prayerfully investigate our hearts. We're to discern our attachments to the things that are in this world. And this does require brutal honesty and introspection. And as we pray for ourselves in our times of quiet, the Spirit begins to transform us from the inside out. I want to make comment here. This is very hip. It's very uh, trendy. It's very in vogue now. The, the millennials and Gen Z, it's all about minimalism. So you walk into a, an apartment and there's a bookshelf and there's like one little scraggly plant and like two books. That's just materialism in reverse. That's just taking the lack, apparent lack of goods to make a statement about who you are and your identity. What prayer for the rich does, though, what prayer for the rich does, though, is it transforms us from the inside out. It transforms us from the inside out. Prayer moves us down into our deeps. Prayer for simplicity gets into the roots and postures of our hearts. That way, if you have that minimalistic bookshelf, it's just your style. It's just what you are. It's just what you do, and it's beautiful, but it's not the source of your identity. You've been, and you could have a bookshelf that's completely full, packed full. You could, you could have whatever you have, but your heart has been transformed by this prayer. Now, I want to note something super important. It's vital to note that our value of simplicity is not a call to legal asceticism. Asceticism is a big word. Asceticism essentially means extreme avoidance of anything indulgent or, in some cases, extreme avoidance of any material goods. Asceticism renounces possessions, and asceticism condemns those people that have possessions. The Bible and Jesus do not do that, okay? Simplicity and our value of simplicity in contrast says you can have, you should have. God gives to us these great things to enjoy, but what we have should be held in proper place before our God. And so prayer helps us actually to avoid a weird legalistic asceticism where we're not having anything and we're scared that we're doing something wrong if we buy something. Prayer helps us to actually develop a holy simplicity of heart. Second, Simplicity is marked by radical generosity. This is just pretty straightforward. Where we find greed, we drive it out by giving it away, period. This is Jesus' exact prescription for the rich, young ruler and for Western, urban Christians. If you want to be perfect, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Drive out greed by giving what you have away. Paul the Apostle, he exhorted his communities throughout Asia Minor, command those who are rich in this present age to not be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And so radical generosity purifies the heart only when it's risky and sacrificial, Meaning radical generosity won't transform your heart till it actually costs you that cup of coffee that week. Does that make sense? Pray through that yourselves personally. And then we close with this. A life of simplicity that's driving greed and impurity, creating holiness in the temple as we go out into the world is marked by being a family with those who have less. Being a family, a real family with those who have less. The radical vision of the biblical narrative, the radical vision of God for humanity is one of total relational equality between men and women, between male and female. 
complete and total equality between every ethnicity and every economic position that you can imagine. God wants to bring equality to the entire globe, and the church is ground zero of this new humanity, this new society that is living equitably in the midst of each other across gender and ethnicity and economy. Our brothers and sisters in the first century in the book of Acts, it says that they were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had in, in need. So Jesus' communities from the very beginning, they were called to a certain level of economic equality as they lived in committed relationship with each other. And so, of course, that begs the question, does that mean that we right now in San Diego should sell our houses and sell our property and move on to a commune somewhere out in Julian? Uh, yeah, I think that would be awesome. <laughs> History has shown that it often falls apart. I do think that there's real merit in valuing the idea of I'm going to commit to these people in such a degree that I give to them what they need, they give to me what I need. I think it's something for us to explore as neighbors' communities. I, I, I don't want to be extreme. I don't want to be legalistic. But I do think it's something that we should consider. And the other thing that I want to say is before we get sidetracked on a tangent here, if you're at all like me, teachings like these, they tend to raise questions in our mind. This is really not the place or the platform for us to debate the dangers or the benefits of socialistic and capitalistic philosophy of economy. That's not what this teaching is about. The big point that I'm wanting to drive home right now, and by the way, you can make a case for socialism and capital, capitalism, they're both fallen systems. The kingdom is wholly unique. It's a third economic system and way of being. The big point that I want to drive home this morning is that this giving, this radical generosity in a life of simplicity, it flows out of relationship with people. It's not just removed from us. New Testament giving is face-to-face -face in, each, in each other's presence. Jesus' communities cared for one another out of relational proximity. The poor ate with the rich. They knew each other. They knew the needs of each other, and they tangibly cared for each other. And that's why I'm so stoked about Phil and, st and, and Steps of Justice. Wednesday, I'm telling you, I was just bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, eyes big as saucers, humans from all across the planet whose suffering has been so far beyond anything that I have ever had to endure. And those kids were so dang excited to squat and, you know, do mobility. And, and it just their beauty, honestly. I was struck by their beauty. And it just, it just made me realize, like, this is, this is the beginning of being family with somebody that's so far removed from me, so different from the world that I live in. And so what we give as Neighbors Church, you will have opportunity to give financially, generously, radically, and that's going to go to support what Phil and Steps of Justice is doing. But more importantly, you can talk with Phil right after this, small group leaders. You can talk with Phil right after this and say, what can we do to get some face-to-face love from some other humans. And these relationships, we have a tendency to think of them as a us charitably giving to them. I'm telling you, when you really begin to live as family with those who have less, they give more to us. They awaken us to the realities of Jesus. They're gifts to our affluent, secure, privileged culture. They open our eyes to the reality when Jesus said, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and a sister of mine, you did for me. They make that real. So we're going to come to communion this morning. And as we come to communion, just know 
that what you're coming to now is the true temple. When we take the bread and we take the cup, you're coming to the true temple, the true mediating point between heaven and earth. Jesus pointed to himself as that embodiment of God's presence in the world, and in Jesus was perfect holiness. So we passively come to Jesus and we say, I'm impure, I'm unclean, I'm unholy, and he should drive us from his presence. But instead what he does is he says, I will take your impurities into myself. Some of us want to come to Jesus this morning with sacrifices. Look, Jesus, I prayed this much this week. Look, Jesus, I'm trying so hard. Look, Jesus, I'm here at church making my sacrifice to you. When we come to Jesus, though, we're actually coming to the man who would make the sacrifice for us, the sacrifice that we couldn't complete in and of ourselves. That's why Jesus said in verse 19, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And so as we prepare to come to communion this morning with our hearts just, I trust, moved by the Spirit, know and experience yourself as utterly loved in your impurity. And let Jesus' purity and holiness wash over you. Receive him. Trust him. Let him have all of your guilt and shame and fear and worry and anxiety. If there's been any moment, as has been for me over this past few weeks, meditating in this passage of like, oh my gosh, Lord, I have been trusting in this system. I've been trusting in this money. I've been trusting in this whatever. This is the time to come to the temple and see that Jesus sacrificed himself to give you a fullness of purity and a fullness of hope, and you can utterly rest in him. You can trust in him. What we'll do is we'll sing a song. Um, Matt's going to lead us in a communion time this morning, and so I, I just want to open the tables right now. During the first song, come forward. Um, you can dip the bread into the cup. Dip, don't sip. <laughs> um, Make sure that uh, you're just creating space for people to get in line. There's two stations over here to the right and to the left. Let me pray. Father, um, just so much to consider in the life of Jesus and what you're doing in us. But I, even during pre-gathering prayer this morning, we prayed for real transformation of hearts, radical transformation. And so we trust that today there would be growth in you, that we would be a little more human more fully human today because we're touched by your holiness. Help us to know how to be active and practice a life of simplicity, content being your children, inheritors of the kingdom of God, all these glorious truths that make us different and eccentric from the world around us, but also make us little mini temples carrying a piece of presence into the world. Wash us clean today as we remember your sacrifice. Make us holy today as we worship you, in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we all stand and we can come to the tables.